Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, where we talk about the stuff we saw since we did the last one of these episodes. My name's David. I'm Tyler. And here we go. Uh, yep. What did you watch? Okay, David, I got a lot of Alfred Hitchcock for you, because that's the class that I'm in right now. And and you located your box set. I, I don't know if that was... Was that an on-air conversation last week? It was not. It was entirely off. Yeah. Okay. So I, I will lend out my movies from time to time, and I do have a uh, catalog system to know what movies are out and who has it. Uh, and I lent out a three Blu-ray set of Rebecca, uh, Notorious, and Spellbound. And I had lent that out to somebody, but I had forgotten to write it down. And so I didn't know who had it. So I had to send out an email to a bunch of people. You're, people. you're, fl- you're, flail- you're flailing. It was, it was a fairly cheap for a three Blu-ray set. It was only, I think, like 18 bucks. So it's not the end of the world. More than anything, it was just like, well, I have to watch two of these movies. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'd rather watch them on high quality as opposed to the really cheap grainy upload that UCLA does for me. Ah. Um, but anyway, but a uh, friend of the show, Jason Eakin had it, which was, uh, which was nice. Yeah. It squirreled away. Yeah. It, it's, I love that. <laughs> I love that phrase. Uh, okay. So shadow of a doubt is, uh, the first one that I watched. This is a rewatch. I saw it many years ago. Didn't remember much about it. Um, and here's what's rough is it's going to be ta- difficult to talk about these movies without bringing in the hour of conversation per film that I had in class yesterday and just hearing the, the various uh, opinions put forth by my classmates. Um, so it's hard to, uh, have, and Oh, the various, uh, like 30 page essays about each one. Uh, sometimes a couple of them per film. Getting your master's is a giant hassle, <laughs> you know, and this is just one class. I guess that's probably good that it's not easy, right? Whatever. So now it means if someone has a, it actually a means something. Yeah, yeah. You know that they earned it. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Yeah, I can, I can use that. Uh, yeah. So have you seen shadow of a doubt? I never have actually. It's very, it's very interesting. Um, because, Hitchcock. Okay, so have you seen have you seen The King of Comedy? Uh, I have never seen The King okay. of Comedy either. Okay. Um, one thing that's interesting about The King of Comedy is that Scorsese, who's something of a virtuoso filmmaker, kind of scales back the style and may and makes a film that is visually and uh, editorially surprisingly bland or just kind of stagnant. Um, to sort of, I'd say, he's sort of taking his cues from. Uh, Rupert Pupkin, mm-hmm. who is kind of a bland guy and just not very interesting. And so Scorsese, I think, was trying to sort of be expressionistic about a character that's not very expressionistic. Um, and it's weird to see that. And in that same way, Hitchcock scales back a lot of his standard Hitchcockian uh editorial decisions and visual decisions because Tom Foolery. Tom, oh, absolutely. Oh, Wellesley and Tom Foolery. You remember that? I did. Yeah, that's what I was okay. saying. Who is Hitch- that? I don't remember. That was in one of those big thick movie books that we had. It, my, it, it wasn't Leonard Maltin. It wasn't a Maltin one, but it was yeah. one of those video reference things. Yeah. And it was about, uh, Mr. Arcadon or confidential yeah, it was report. F, it was F for fake. Oh, it was F for fake. Yeah. Oh yeah. This person had that's no what patience. I disagree with. Yeah. If you're going to acu- accuse confidential report of containing some Wellesley and Tom Foolery, I'll, I'll hear your argument. That's for fake is a masterpiece. I'd say, okay, there is a moment in Mr. Arcaden with uh, a flea circus. That part has some tomfoolery, but I'd say the whole of F for fake is tomfoolery. I think Wells himself would say it's tomfoolery. 
But it's tomfoolery with a purpose. Oh, sure. No question about it. Are you saying Mr. Arcaden does not have a purpose? I'm saying some of the fucking around and Mr. Arcaden is fucking around for fucking around's sake. But then again, it's been 15 years since I've seen it. That's true. And I haven't seen it myself for a while. Um, also, it, it's, it's worth noting, you and I watched Confidential Report. Since then, I have seen Mr. Arcaden, the closest thing to the director's... Oh, so cut. I've only seen the Confidential Report. Yeah. Okay. The, the Criterion released, you know, three separate versions, as they tend to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway... Uh, that's not what we're talking That's about. not what we're talking about. So, the Hitchcockian tomfoolery is, is scaled back because he's showing ideal small town life in Santa Rosa, California with, uh, this, and it's very, I, w- I would not have said this if not for one of the essays that we read. It's very Capra esque, uh, the, the small town, but then Joseph Cotton shows up and his introduction was very Hitchcockian, very film noir. Mm-hmm. And then he, and he's running away from people. And then when he descends into the town, it's basically a film noir character walking into a Capra situation and just changing everything he touches. And it's very, very interesting. I didn't love the movie. I don't really respond to it that well. And I think that the ending, is, the, the climax is really rushed, but there's a lot going on in the film. And I think if you're a, certainly if you're a, a Hitchcock completist, and if you're also interested in thematic, uh, specifically sexual thematic things that he explores, I'd say that's definitely one to see because there's a weird emotionally incestuous relationship uh, between um, Joseph Cotton, who's Uncle Charlie, and then his niece, mm. young Charlie. She is named after him, and just the, t- the way the two interact is uh, disconcerting. So, shadow okay. of a doubt. Uh, I watched... Uh, now, last week I talked about the, um, the, 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 the noir film Too Late for Tears, uh, which I loved. Right. Um, and that was a movie that was sort of, uh, rediscovered or re, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not renovated, restored, uh, mm-hmm. by, uh, your school, the UCLA film oh. television archive. And the other movie, that's that what was, all those posters are about. The, uh, the other movie that they put out that they did at the same time that Flick Rally put out the same week, um, is, uh, is the one I watched this week and it's called woman on the run and it is equally terrific. Um, have you seen it? No, but it's, uh, it goes off of movie today. Oh, okay. So did you watch too late for tears? You didn't I get did a not get a chance because oh, I'm watching stuff. all these damn Hitchcock movies. Damn Hitchcock. What a fucking hack. Um, woman on the run is another, uh, ter- terrific movie that, uh, like is sort of a, um, no joke intended you're a sister film to too late for tears because they're both, uh, the rare noir films with female leads. Oh, okay. Um, this one starts with a man. You think it's going to be about a, about a man. A man uh, walking his dog late at night witnesses a murder. Calls in to the cops, and once he realizes while talking to the detective what he saw, which was um, a witness being killed by the by organized crime, mm-hmm. he realizes, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. The cops couldn't keep that guy safe. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be able to make, keep me safe, and so he runs. He goes into hiding. Yeah. And so his wife that he lives with, but you get the impression, uh, that their marriage is on the rocks, mm. um, is not particularly concerned at first. Uh, but the cops are looking for him. And then a reporter also is looking for him to get the story. And the reporter teams up with the wife to track this guy down. And so most of the movie is the woman and, uh, the reporter sort of 
walking through San Francisco, there's a lot of on-location San Francisco shooting. So it becomes a sort of tour of San Francisco, Fishman's Wharf and Chinatown and Telegraph Hill mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Uh, but it's also a tour. They're going through to places that she thinks he might be. And so it's a also a tour of their past, the couple. Yeah. And so, like I said, their marriage is on the rocks. She starts to remember things about their past, and you see, like, her remembering why she loves this guy oh. over the course of this movie while they're trying to find him. It's terrific. And it's That's only about great. 75 minutes long. And then it turns out to be like a big scavenger hunt and, you know, it was a <laughs> very romantic gesture on his part. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, so that's a woman on the run. I would definitely recommend it. And it's available on Blu-ray from Flick Rally. All right. Uh, the next one is a rewatch for me. Another Hitchcock film. Uh, Notorious. Uh, this one I have seen. Holy shit. I forgot <laughs> how absolutely perfect this movie is. Uh, the first time I watched it, I'm going to say I didn't, I didn't remember much mostly because you were drunk. Jen and I were making out through most of it. Okay. Uh, that's actually true. Um, so sorry about that. Uh, that wasn't being a very good film lover in that moment. Um, I I was being, I was being a Jen lover. Yeah. I think I'm trying to think I've definitely like made out with girlfriends that were watching movies that I've already seen. (laughs) Sure. You know, like I definitely, I have one ex-girlfriend that like, you know, I'm okay. Like we're on good terms and everything. But a part of me is like, I know she never saw the end of Mrs. Parker in the vicious circle. <laughs> and that bugs me. Um, oh, don't get me wrong. Like there were moments while making out that movies on and no, I, I'm locked in with Jen. Don't get me wrong, but my ear picks up, uh, an interesting bit of plot. And in my mind, it's like, Oh, <laughs> And then it's um, just, it's just, hey, focus on the issue at hand here. Um, the only other movie I can remember, uh, this is in high school, making out with my girlfriend while watching for the first time in the movie theater, mm-hmm. no less, was Small Time Crooks, <laughs> which I then went on to see. It's a delightful little film. <laughs> Not in the theater, but I, yeah. I think, because you, I think, did you have it on VHS when I did. we lived together? I did. Yeah, so I watched it probably a couple times when we were uh, roomies. Um, so I definitely, I caught up on all the parts I missed. Yeah. You know, I should have called speech and debate roomies. I think that would have <laughs> speech and debate for those that don't know is the, oh, yeah. uh, shot on video, uh, feature length film that Tyler made about what a dick I was. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. I specifically incorporated scenes that are highly fictionalized in which I am a dick. Uh, all the <laughs> scenes where David is a dick, those are pretty, pretty much verbatim, but, uh, no notorious. I cannot, David, I cannot get over how astonishing the movie is. And I, it's, and I feel like I'm overselling it, but it's just so, it seems so small, you know, it's just this, uh, you could call it a love triangle, except one of the relationships is not real where this woman is sent into, uh, this underground Nazi ring to, uh, get romantically involved with one of the, one of the guys in it. And, and he winds up proposing to her. And so she marries him, but the marriage isn't real. She's actually in love with her, uh, American spy handler, Carrie Grant. So, and the woman is uh, Ingrid Bergman, all the three wonderful performances, Claude Rains, especially as the, uh, the, the Nazi who is shockingly sympathetic. Um, you know, obviously what he believes and what he's trying to do is terrible, but one thing that's interesting is that the movie kind of boils us down to how these characters treat each other. Mm-hmm. And Claude Rains treats Ingrid Bergman way better than Cary Grant does. Cary Grant is a real asshole to her. And you just want to be like, oh, 
Get away from him. He's Claude Rains. He's going to treat you right, provided you're the right ethnicity. And it's just a uh, and and uh, Ingrid Bergman has uh, a history where her father is a is a was a former Nazi before he was executed, mm-hmm. and that's how she knew Claude Rains. Not so. There's there's so much going on, but it's all about it, relationships. Um, Nazism itself is kind of a MacGuffin in the film. Uh, it it's I I cannot and also just uh, one of the things that we talked about in the class is how beautifully constructed every shot is specifically with where people are placed in the frame because it's a movie that's mostly just talking um, and so if you're going to try to uh, if you're going to try and convey something mm-hmm. visually then yeah and you don't want to have just some weird you know, uh, Dutch angles or something like that. If you want to keep it pretty straightforward, but you still want to communicate to the audience right. emotionally, then it has to be all about how the characters are shot and where they're placed in relation to one another. And then when something, when something does visually stand out, it becomes, it feels earned. Absolutely. Like, is there a long, like a push into a, uh, is it a key in? Uh, yeah. In, uh, yeah. Where there's a, a party happening in the, in a very large house and the camera goes from the top of the stairs. It's not unlike that shot of magnificent Ambersons. Um, it goes from the top of the stairs all the way down, uh, to Ingrid Bergman holding a key, uh, right. behind her back. So it goes yeah, yeah, from a right. very wide shot swoops down to a very close-up shot. Awesome. And, yeah, it's a wonderful film. I, I cannot praise it enough. All right. <clears throat> I saw uh, a, a new film. I'm trying to, in general my life, see more new movies in the theaters, and mm-hmm. I just rely on press screenings to see yeah. new movies. So if I didn't get a press screening or I couldn't make it uh, and it's something I'm interested in, uh, I will go see it. And especially since I don't see a lot of summer blockbuster movies. Uh, so I went to see... Because uh, I've been very interested in this uh, in this director, I saw David Yates's The Legend of Tarzan. I'm interested because it's David Yates. Yeah, that's why I wanted to see it, uh, and the cast is great. You've got Alexander Scars, Alexander Skarsgård, um, yes. uh, Margot Robbie, Christoph Waltz, and Samuel Jackson, yeah. as well as um, a couple of uh, smaller Jim Broadbent in a very small role, mm. but he's still Jim Broadbent. And I feel like there's someone else I'm missing. Oh, yeah. Ben Chaplin in a role that like is like blinking you'll miss it to the point where I'm like I I can't talk about the role very much without giving away I guess some oh, spoilers. Okay. Oh, I should say he dies shortly after being introduced. Okay. And so I'm thinking like Ben Chaplin is I think of him as a recognizable and a face but he's not that he's not a big enough actor that his brief appearance and then his death like looms large over the rest of the film. See, he's not I wonder if he's that's not Liam Neeson in, you know, Gangs of New York or something like that. Right. Or Steven Seagal in Executive Decision. Absolutely. Um, I'm just like, but I feel like he's in the thing where it's like his death in the movie is like it's one of many and it seems like nothing. So I'm like, do they maybe want to cast a recognizable face among all the people who get killed in this one scene? So that this, so this sticks out, but then is Ben Chaplin to that level? It's really weird. I'm like, I really spent way too long thinking why was Ben Chaplin cast in that role? It could be that he was he had a larger role and it got cut down, or is it? It's, it's possible, but the way that he's introduced and then the way that he's killed, it's like I, I'm not sure where you could fit more. It could be almost like, and I know this character is, is a bigger role. It sounds like, but it's almost like Matthew Modine in uh, Dark Knight Rises. 
where you do might you might need somebody that at least registers as right. oh I've seen that person before, yeah. just so it, it yeah. we are able to connect with the crowd. Matthew Dean's a great big movie star. In my, I might have a skewed idea yeah. of who's famous and <laughs> yeah. who's not. Um, yeah, I don't think Ben Chaplin probably doesn't pass the uh, "Does my mom know who that know who that is?" Right. Ta- test. Yeah. Um, Matthew Modine might. I don't know. I, I don't know if my mom saw I know, I, I, Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, I know my mom's a huge fan of Gross Anatomy. Uh-huh. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't know if I've seen Gross Anatomy. I just know he's in it. And I don't know why I know that. Probably um, just uh, from working at video stores and seeing him on the cover. Um, but certainly everyone knows Jiminy Glick and his four sons, Morgan, <laughs> Mason, Matthew, and Modine. That's right. Maybe that and Full Metal Jacket are Matthew yeah. Modine's big contribution <laughs> to culture. Um, there's also a band that I, I want to say they're called The Ponies or something, and mm-hmm. they have a song. It's like a girl rock band that have a song mm-hmm. that goes, Matthew Modine, I want to be your blowjob queen. Oh, wow. So apparently they were into Matthew Modine. Wasn't he in uh, an episode or two of The West Wing? Yeah, he was, right? He I was on so. Weeds as well in the okay. first or second season. Okay. Um, anyway, Legend of Tarzan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's not, it's a movie that I can't... Um, really say anything negative about but it also doesn't leap off the screen uh in the way that it should i think the thing that's most notable about it and this is more something that you appreciate intellectually than emotionally yeah is that it is while it's the white guy in the land of not white people Mm -hmm. it's very very intent on not being one of those movies in fact it's uh would you say too intense no i think it, it does a really good job of being not just sympathetic to the nine yeah. non-white characters, but kind of taking um, an anti-colonialist stance as yeah. its entire reason for being. That's kind of what yeah. the story is about. Uh, yeah, Josh and I were recently talking about Lawrence of Arabia, and he had mentioned, uh, the episode hasn't gone up yet, uh, but he mentioned that unlike a movie like Dances with Wolves or anything like that, it's not a situation where a white guy goes into a non-white situation and is either the savior or learns from these noble savages. <laughs> right. And Josh saying that it was the first time it ever occurred to me that Lawrence of Arabia could have been that. Yeah, that's true. Because I think when a movie's when it's good, you don't even notice. And also when a movie before you see it, you already know it's not like we saw Lawrence of Arabia opening weekend. Like we already true. knew it was supposed to be great. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean, I guess there's that. Um, but yeah, uh, Legend of Tarzan is, um, it's the kind of like, if it, if it shows up on Netflix or airs on HBO, like there are much worse ways to spend a hundred minutes. And the fact that it's under two hours, uh, for a big, like effects heavy, uh, summer blockbuster, good for them for keeping it, keeping it short. This sounds Um, like a good movie pass movie for me, David. Yeah. Uh, and I will say this, I don't normally think about these kind of things, um, but uh, the CGI animals are terrific. Like, they're, doing, they're doing amazing things with apes these days, David. It really, yeah, there's apes, there's, uh, there's elephants, there's one hippo, not enough hippos. That's another complaint I have. Because there's even, like, early on, Margot Robbie is talking to a group of kids about how dangerous hippos are. So mm. it's kind of, it seems like it's, it's Chekhov's hippo. Like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, at some point hippo is going to show up and it's going to be scary. Yeah. And that kind of happens, but then it just like, it goes away way too quick. I wish there had been a bigger hippo scene. 
Like in Congo. Like in Congo, where you are the endangered species. <laughs> Damn right. Um, Beat me to it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's Legend of Tarzan. All right. That that excites me. I think I actually do. If I want to take a break from Alfred Hitchcock films, maybe I'll go see Tarzan. <laughs> um, so okay, David, this next movie is a first watch for me. Okay. You would dig it the most. Okay. It is Marnie. Have you seen Marnie? I've never seen Marnie. No. Wow. It's up my alley, huh? Yes. So much. Because the beginning... Wait, I'm trying to think which of my pet themes... Well, it's Everett Hitchcock, so it's probably obsession. Okay. Is yeah. there sexual repression yeah. in it? And is there at any point um, a penance through physical harm or amputation? That's another one that we've I, talked about coming up a lot. I guess... I forgot about that one uh, for you. Uh, we might not have talked about it in the Pet Themes episode, but when we talked about Neon Demon and I talked about why I love Only God Forgives, okay, yes. I talked about that idea. And I was thinking about it more since then because um, I was thinking about the films of Kim Ki-duk, a uh, South yeah. Korean filmmaker that I love, and how he is a, uh, a Catholic okay. uh, filmmaker. And often there are amputations people lose limbs in his movies or otherwise suffer great physical harm well i was going to say a resounding yes until you said amputation oh, okay. uh there is no amputation uh in the film but the, it you know it's it's a film about sexual repression made in the 1960s and is definitely inter- interested in psychoanalysis and stuff like that so yeah there are some people that get uh, shaken pretty hard good and i think punched uh, at one point okay. but it is it's got sean connery and tippy hedron uh, i think the only other thing i'd seen with her in it was the birds and i thought she was a she was perfectly fine but probably a pretty limited actress she's doing pretty pretty much some pretty amazing things in marnie but that's the thing the first half hour of it feels like uh, a standard hitchcock thriller um and then it quickly moves into just pure melodrama, like full on almost Douglas Serkian melodrama. Um, but what's interesting is that the first half hour has set up thriller like stakes. And so the nature of the melodrama starts to change and you actually are sort of on the edge of your seat as though it's going to conti- it's going to come back to being a thriller but spoilers, it never does. It winds up just being a mystery of what is what happened to this woman. Uh, it is definitely from cut from the same cloth as Vertigo. Okay. Um, and what year is it? Sixty four. Okay. And it is. I cannot. It's not for everybody, but you, David. All right. Would dig it the most. Okay. Uh, I saw another so-so uh, big uh, Hollywood movie. Uh, this one, an animated film that comes out this weekend called The Secret Life of Pets. Um, it's not even that. It's uh, It does, I mean, it's thankfully like a lot of animated kids' movies. It's short, but it does wear out its welcome with... Uh, this is... <laughs> this is maybe the kind of illustrates the difference between like the Pixar style, like family movies, like Finding yeah. Dory I thought was really good. Um this is when you're watching and you're going, okay, this is for kids, which is not even saying that it's awful. Yeah. Like there are awful movies that are for kids. Yeah. This is a movie where it's like, this is for kids first. And as a result, it's really shrill. You know, it's, it, it moves. Yeah. It uncomfortably. It's, it's uncomfortably kinetic yeah. for an adult because it just seems like it's trying to keep kids interested. 
Um, and so you've got, and I'm a Kevin Hart fan, but Kevin Hart voices the, the villain, I guess, um, who's a, a bunny rabbit. It's kind of a joke that he's this adorable little bunny rabbit and he's the villain, but it is just, he is just shouting yeah. at the top of his lungs, every line that he has. And it's like, I'm sure kids, I'm sure that's definitely going to make an impression on little kids, but it got old real quick for me. Um, and other than that, I mean, it's a story that, uh, doesn't really bring anything new. It's sort of a, it's sort of a finding Nemo type story where, um, in this case, two, two dogs, uh, get lost, um, voiced by Louis CK voices. This the main one. And now I'm drawing a blank completely on who voices the other dog get, um, they get lost on their walk and then get the lose their collars and they end up in Brooklyn and, then so the other dogs and the other pets from the apartment building who all know each other mm-hmm. have to band together and go search for so it's 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 sort of like finding nemo meets baby's day out with dogs <laughs> um uh it's it, it's it's just a 90 minute series of shenanigans um it does have some uh visual uh flair and t- like the 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 opening shot of which is i mean uh, I don't know if shot is, I guess shot's the right word sure. to use when you're talking about an animated film. It's uh, doing something only an animated film can do, which is just sweeping through New York at great speed. Nice. Um, and it is actually, it does actually almost have like a soaring over California type of like, mm. <laughs> like a amusement park ride uh, feel to it. Um, and there's also a bit that feels, I'm, I don't think kids will, um, get this reference, but it feels very much like Homer Simpson imagining a chocolate land. <laughs> you remember that? Because the yes. two dogs, they break into a sausage factory and it becomes okay. a fantasy of them yeah. running around a world in, where everything is entirely made of sausages. Yes. Um, and that part is funny, even though I was, uh, it, it feels so similar to that Homer, Homer Simpson uh, bit. Uh, that part was maybe, maybe the highlight of the movie. Uh, for me, but uh, overall, I I can't. It's you know great voice cast. I mentioned Louis C.K. and Kevin Hart. You've also got Jenny Slate uh, mm-hmm. in, in there as the as the um, female lead. Um, I mean female, you know canine lead, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 a bunch of other people, um, including Albert Brooks. Oh, that's two <laughs> two animated movies he's done this summer, mm-hmm. both of which involve animals driving vehicles. That seems to be a big thing this summer. Animals driving. <laughs> Was not expecting that in the movie that takes place in the ocean. Oh, the, is the vehicle a boat? No. Oh, you haven't seen Finding Dory? No. Yet? Okay. It doesn't actually look that good to me. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, I, I talked about it on here. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's just not Finding Nemo good. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like, you know how Jaws 3 takes place at like an amusement park? Yes. Finding Dory takes place mostly at, uh, like, um, it's not a zoo. It's like a marine life, uh, oh, okay. like an, like an aquarium, but it's also educational and about like rehabilitating okay. fish. And so, um, uh, so yeah, a huge section of finding Dory actually does not take place in the ocean. Okay. Just so you know, that was how we're talking about talking about secret life of pets, which takes place entirely in Manhattan and Brooklyn, uh, and does end with a kind of Hitchcockian suspense, um, scene on the Brooklyn bridge. Oh, wow. Um, Obviously a little more, like I said, visually, 
uh, jumpy and kinetic than than Hitchcock, but it does have that. It turns out that cat did murder his wife. Uh, <laughs> no, but it has kind of like an end of North by Northwest type of okay. like big, you know, suspense ending cool. to it. That's fun. Um, yeah. Uh, but again, I can't really recommend spending money on it unless if you have kids, I'm sure they'll like it and there are worse ways you could spend 90 minutes. Uh, but yeah. Did I lend you Great Mouse Detective? No, I've still, I've still never seen it. Oh, man. You should check your uh, cards and see who has it. Well, uh, <laughs> oh, it's here. I think it's here. Okay. Yeah, it is. You should watch it. The, the, okay. the uh, climax takes place uh, on uh, Big Ben. And uh, I, think I'm a, I think I do like that. It's, it's fun. Yeah. It just feels climactic. The, the climax could be people having a civilized conversation. <laughs> and it's just like, and it feels really big. Yeah. Um, but uh, now, David, before we move on, because I don't want to say say this at the end because people will tune out. Oh. So Comic-Con is coming up. Yes, and we are having our annual meetup. It'll be Thursday, July 21st, um, 8 to question mark, 8 what? to 10. Yeah, 10. Uh, 8 to 10 at uh, at the Bootlegger Bar, same place it was uh, last year, which we, we, as much as we liked the years of service from Dublin Square, Bootlegger, I think, fits I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The- uh, bootlegger fits our needs a little bit more, um, and they're very, uh, they're a great bar. They have great beer and good, good food. food yeah and um so there's places to sit and um you should be able to have a drink on the house not on we, the house on battleship retention yeah or someone else yeah. uh we can't actually guarantee that now we're waiting yeah, uh we're for final confirmation but uh there's a good chance that uh, as in past years um that's what we say eight to ten you can hang out past ten but after ten we are not buying any beer for you yeah <laughs> it's basically from eight to ten you can have a have a drink um but uh, that will be confirmed uh, by the next movie journal. Okay. Um, but yeah, that should be the case. That's uh, Thursday, July 21st at the bootlegger in, uh, in the gas lamp district in San Diego. I've got, I've got Comic-Con fever. I'm, I'm, I've been looking, I looked yesterday and then today to see the rollout of the schedule. I've been actually very excited. Yeah. I, I, I do feel that this will be my 11th year and I do feel that each year it takes me a little bit later in the year to get, comic-con fever maybe i'm becoming a little jaded it used to be like as soon as the weather started getting summery i'm like it's comic-con weather you know i would get super excited in like early june yeah for comic-con now it's like okay the schedule's the schedule's coming out i'm excited for comic-con yeah i think for me because you know my class was starting i was so preoccupied by that that once it started that comic-con's not in my brain at all i was just thinking about this class and then I only realized, I think a few days ago that, oh shoot, that's only in a, Comic-Con's only in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Uh, but yeah, and, and I'm also excited to uh, go to the meetup and talk to listeners and yeah. have uh, some of the delicious chicken fingers that they made me uh, last, uh, yeah. they made just for me last week, uh, last year. Oh, just for you? Just for me. Um, that reminds me, I was supposed to ask you off mic if you could uh, work up a, a flyer like you usually do. I'll see what I can do. Okay. Um, <laughs> No guarantees. Uh, this class combined with work, combined with uh, podcasts, and I stupidly made a lot of work for myself over more than one lesson that is mercifully done now with this top 50 list. Um, oh but that's done now. So, And you can find it over at morethanonelesson.com. But, uh, but yeah, I will do my best. Okay. Um, so this next film is a rewatch for me. It is a film I've seen literally dozens of times, but a friend of mine had not seen it. So I watched predator with my friend <laughs> with my friend amsey who i watched psycho with who i watched alien with and he hadn't seen either of those he didn't know any of the twists with psycho um he didn't know about the big chest bursting scene in alien and he didn't know much about predator either and so um 
This is a very, it's, it's always fun to watch movies that you've seen a million times with someone who's, who hasn't seen it even once. Yeah. Um, boy, predator holds up. It, it definitely, I do yeah. want to, have we done an episode about this? The idea of a movie that not merely takes its time, but it spends a good amount of time heading in one direction and then dramatically goes in another. I mean, it's, it's oh, odd right. that I just mentioned psycho and alien. Um, yeah. And we've, and, uh, from dusk till dawn is, a uh, yeah, oh, that's perfect. Those, that's perfect. Um, and to a certain extent, as we've talked about before, um, jaws, yeah, which switches from being a horror movie to an adventure, like a seafaring adventure yeah. movie halfway through. Um, and then, the, yeah. and then the horror movie reasserts yeah, itself it once Hooper goes into the, uh, cage. Yeah. Cage goes in the water. Sharks in the water. Our shark. Um, farewell and adieu. Okay, moving on. Um, yeah, boy, I do love the amount of time that they spend on the military operation. Yeah. Had we not seen the spaceship come to Earth in the very first shot, we would have no idea what this movie was. We'd think it was Commando or, or Platoon or something like that. And then suddenly, oh, there's something, something very wrong here. Yeah, I mean, how I wonder. I would it, like someone like your friend. I would love to show it to them starting after the spaceship, just see yeah. how they react when it, yeah. when all of a sudden there's an alien. And the and and you know and the 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 title would be very uh, very ambiguous at that right. moment. Yeah. Um, because because th- then you are really discovering things with everyone else. You see these skinned corpses hanging from a tree, and you think, "Wow, what have these guys gotten themselves into mm-hmm. with the?" With the gorilla, yeah. uh, the gorillas that they're fighting, not Tarzan gorillas. I mean, uh, gorillas with a U and an E. Yeah. Um, so I just, I love John McTiernan's commitment to that. And you understand, of course, why, which is it really establishes how efficient these guys are, which then makes the, the predators fairly easy uh, killing of them it really amps up the stakes there. Um, and also I read like a couple weeks ago, I read, I wish I remember where it was, uh, a really wonderful article about screenwriting and how to introduce a lot of characters in a small amount of time. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the helicopter scene in predator where it establishes every character in that helicopter. Yes. In a very, it boils them down, but by the end of it, you know who you definitely, definitely know who Jesse Ventura is. You know who Shane black is, you know who bill Duke is just based on, you know, that long tail cell is one of the greatest songs of all time. Damn right. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, and the role that it plays in predators is oh, a really? lot. Yeah. Is that your next movie? Predators? No, it is not. Okay. Cause I lent it to Amsey. Uh, okay, it I, absolutely. I looked over here and I saw that. I knew, I was like, I know he owns predators and it is not in the spot in the shelf. I'll bet the next movie he's going to talk about is predators. No, I lent it to, Oh, if I had not lent it to him and I was kicking myself for doing so, I've still um, never seen it. Predators. I, I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. It definitely, it owes a lot to predator. It pays a lot of homage to predator, maybe a little bit too much, but it still is, is I think fairly effective in a lot of ways. But um, and the other thing that I, the, the other big takeaway for me, for me was, uh, Oh, I guess two. One is that that third act is so stressful mm-hmm. to me, a one-on-one fight where it's you versus a creature and you are horribly outmatched. It could be Brody with the shark coming right at him, mm-hmm. whatever it is. 
But with this, it really, it's a battle of wits. It's a battle of strength. It's a battle of, of luck between uh, Dutch and the predator. It is, I know what's going to, I know every beat of that last fight. And yet my heart is pounding. Yeah. And I feel so bad for Arnold Schwarzenegger, which speaks to how powerful the predator is as a character that I feel like, Oh, this giant man is in trouble. (laughs) Um, but then the other, I love how we establish how strong he is at the beginning. (laughs) This is with a a chance for me to mention one of my favorite lines in the history of cinema. Okay. When, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers arm air wrestle, I guess, or, Air arm wrestle, I guess is go. what you'd say. Air arm wrestle. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger wins however you would win, however yeah. it's judged. And he says, what's the matter? CAA got you pushing too many pencils? Okay. <laughs> now. It's one of my favorite lines in all movies. Here's, this brings me to my next point. Uh-huh. Arnold is really good in that movie. I think he's gotten worse as an actor uh, as he's gotten older. <laughs> that is rare. But uh, with this, there's... You know, he's only ever going to be so good, but I believe everything that he's selling. There's a part where he, um, like, especially anything that any interaction he has with Carl Weathers, like there's particular, there's one moment when he says, he says, what happened to you? You used to be someone I could trust. And he delivers it spot on. Like it's very small and it is genuine hurt and disgust. It's a um, good performance. Maybe John McTiernan is, uh, Maybe the the person to to thank for that. Who is I think thought of when people think of John McTiernan, they think of him as a as a stylist. He yeah. tends to present very uh, compelling uh, asp- you know scope frames. Yeah. Um, whether it's in a jungle outdoor jungle landscape setting like Predator, or in a skyscraper like in Die Hard, yeah. he's, he's got a great visual sense. But maybe. Maybe he knows how to get that kind of moment out of an actor as well. Well, and I was watching some of the special features and there was an interview with McTiernan both then and, and now, now being when the DVD was put out. But, uh, and he said that he, he realized a long time ago that an, a, a good cast can be your secret weapon and that you can sell really outlandish things if you have good actors that can sell it. And so you need to be able to cast well and work with the actors and that, a lot of action directors don't think of that. They just think of the actors as, okay, well, they, we just need them to say, you know, get down and stuff like that. Right. But he realized that, no, 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 they are imperative to selling this reality. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he spent a lot of time with uh, with the actors and with Arnold specifically. Okay, we can move on. Yeah, I got one more movie. You have two more, I think. Yeah. Um, I saw, last night I went and saw a new uh, movie starring a friend of ours um, that's a terrific, nasty little midnight movie. Uh, it's called Carnage Park. Mm. Um, our friend Pat Healy plays the uh, the villain. I didn't know that. Um, and uh, he's he is terrific. Of course he is. I don't want to say that just because he's our friend, but there's something about Pat that you see in this, and he does it in compliance as well, where he can be menacing and scary and creepy, but his I think Pat's innate skills as a comedic actor yeah. can't help but come through and it also uh, it like in compliance and here it m- ends up making the character even more unsettling because you're laughing and then yeah. i mean there's a as a oh man there's a part here when he chloroforms someone where Ooh. it's like a laugh line followed by him like yeah pushing himself on top of this woman and uh, you know almost suffocating her getting her to yeah. breathe in the chloroform and it's uh, very unsettling uh, uh, that this is all happening essentially in one shot. Um, 
going from that to to that but uh mostly carnage park is just it's a you know it's a gory kill fest that's highly stylistic it's got some fun music great uh great performances i think that's that's what it takes um uh for you we were just talking about actors you know the best of these you know b movie you know bloody exploitative uh, exploitation like genre movies that they're they're at their best when the actor or the actors commit to them and don't they don't wink they mm-hmm. they play it as real even if the character's ridiculous uh or, or or whatever you know i think there was i can't remember who wrote it for the av club but someone talking about how why um ethan hawk is like the best b movie actor of the last 10 years because whenever he's that was in, a fairly recent article right uh, i feel like it was like a year ago um recent for you know yes yeah. oh, uh, because he did a while he, ago. ethan hawk tends to go back and forth between like you know uh a sort of dramatic indie and then he'll do like the purge or yeah. what was it, like the getaway with uh selena gomez is that what that's called oh boy i don't i have no idea uh, and like sinister and yeah. like he's in all these uh daybreakers is that what was that one of them that uh is that what that's called sounds right <laughs> the the vampire one i can't remember yeah. if that's what it's called anyway and, that, and that's kind of what you've got here you get this movie that is in many ways uh visually paying homage to 1970 it takes place in the 1970s it's the 1970s you know grindhouse exploitation bloody it's the kind of movie that's horror but not because it's scary, but because it's just so unrelentingly unsettling and uh, violent and people die in awful ways constantly. But you've got Pat uh, as the main bad guy. You've got Ashley Bell from um, The Last Exorcism, Mm. uh, which is, I never saw The Last Exorcism 2. And yeah, jokes, jokes, jokes about how, how can you make a sequel to The Last Exorcism? Shut up. Um, But the first one, The Last Last Exorcism is another really cool movie that got kind of overlooked. Um, so you've got those two uh, as as the main uh, people, and then you've got a few other characters here and there, including uh, the great Alan Ruck as the sheriff. Hey, all right. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I can't really. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not the kind of movie that's going to end up on my top ten list. You know, um, there's a couple of corny lines of dialogue in it that I think kind of uh, um, break the suspension of disbelief uh, a, a little bit, but. Um, if you know what you're getting into and the kind of movie that would play great at a midnight screening, um, you'll have fun with it. It's it's exactly what it sort of set out to be. You know, there's an element, it's weird to be commenting on someone we know in like a complimentary way. It feels like we're talking about him behind his back, even if we're saying nice things. (laughs) Um, the thing about him as an actor, specifically as a villainous actor, um, is that there is an element to him that is, it's not that he's an everyman, it's that he can seem just just as far, if, if you saw him walking down the street, you wouldn't necessarily, like, in, in a movie, uh, a main character could, be, could pass him down the street and not give him a second thought. Like, there's a reason that he plays employees really well. Uh-huh. Um, right. Because he just seems like... Uh, he can uh, play milk toast. Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, non-threatening, not super memorable. And it's not to say that Pat is not that. It's that he's deceptively that. Mm, right. um, because then you see, you can see that he's remar- he can be remarkably funny and remarkably sinister. Um, and that's you know when you see that. That's why when in compliance, you hear the voice and it sounds it it has a, a definite quality to it. But then you see that oh he's just. 
standing in his kitchen or you see it. Oh, he's just works a regular job. He's just mm-hmm. a regular schmo. There is a, a quality to Pat on screen that he can adapt to any number of, of types of characters, but I don't know. It's whether it be in cheap thrills where he's not the villain, but he has to do some pretty rough stuff or compliance or this movie or the innkeepers, whatever it is, there isn't, there is a quality to Pat on screen that if you twist it and make it villainous or malevolent, it makes it actually more frightening uh, than, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, it makes sorry, it, I'm laughing at something else. Okay. I'm laughing at a text that I just got. Um, I was laughing at a text I got from Google voice when it records someone's voicemail and then sends it to you as a text and always gets things wrong. Oh really? They yeah. still do that? Yeah. I thought that was over. No. So I got a text. That someone said, sorry, I didn't get back to you. Basically, I was in Iowa with my wife visiting, and I'm sure he said her family, but it said I was visiting your family. <laughs> oh, me? Yeah. oh, boy. It's like, oh, I think I missed a number of phone calls at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I just, uh, there are actors, like Anthony Hopkins as, as Hannibal Lecter is very effective, but to me, if Pat were to play a serial killer, uh-huh. I think that'd be so much more frightening because he does seem like well, someone that could just walk down the street. See Carnage Park. Okay. All right. So next for me is another Hitchcock film. Okay. It is Rebecca. I've never seen that one either. This one is, uh, look, I know it sounds weird. It, not weird, but I'm sure it sounds uh, counterintuitive um, or just very obvious that a film student would be saying, hey, have you seen this Hitchcock film? It's pretty good. Uh, Rebecca, which actually won Best Picture in 1940, I believe. Is that true? Yeah. And it's got uh, Laurence Olivier and, uh, oh, Joan Crawford, I believe. Um, The delightful George Sanders. Um, I don't know if you know who that is. George Sanders, he was in All About Eve. He was the voice of Shere Khan. Oh, yeah. That was a big thing. Um, And he's uh, very charming and very acidic. Uh, this movie, I cannot tell you how much it just grabbed me. First off, there's a lot of, there's a lot of vertigo in there, which is, which I guess that's to say that there's a lot of Rebecca in vertigo Mm -hmm. where there's this young girl who is on vacation with, uh, in, in, uh, Monte Carlo where she's basically like the personal assistant of this very rich woman. And while she's there, she meets this rich widower played by Laurence Olivier, who they fall in love and he, he takes her back to his, his estate mm-hmm. called, uh, like, uh, uh, Manderley. And I don't know. Okay. So I don't think that this film would have had much impact on Citizen Kane because there's only a year difference. And my guess is Wells was already working on Citizen Kane uh, when mm-hmm. this film was uh, was released. Manderley is so much about Manderley and just the inside, the outside, the just the general tone of it is so so Xanadu. Yeah. Um, and so, and maybe that maybe it was also inspired by you know San Simeon uh, and. It's just, uh, and so what happens is this girl gets 
gets brought in as the new uh, Mrs. De Winter. And when I say new, it's because, again, this guy's a widower. His wife died. His wife's name is Rebecca. And so... The, the late wife. The late wife, pardon me, yes. Um, and so this new girl comes in and just finds that the housekeepers, especially one run by this very militant, uh, head maid or whatever you want to call her. Um, they really just are expecting her to just be Rebecca, um, and just fill Rebecca's shoes a hundred percent. Like she goes and sits at Rebecca's desk. You see Rebecca stationary all over the place. <laughs> um, and, and it, they just, they do such a good job. And, and Lawrence Olivier's character, he is sympathetic towards her. He does love her, but he's also kind of oblivious to what the household is doing to her and how he is also doing it. Um, and then there's developments at the end that I actually, that I won't go into, but, uh, it does such a great job of establishing how she can feel so lonely not merely alone, uh, not merely lonely, but alone. She can be so alone, so isolated in the midst of a house that is bustling with people. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing about Xanadu is you really got the impression it was just Charles Foster Kane and Susan Alexander. And so she feels very alone. This, there's people coming and going all the time. It's, you know, uh, bright and daylight mm-hmm. and it's very beautiful in a lot of ways, but it is so oppressive. Um, and it's not a haunted, it's not a, a haunted house movie, but it might as well be with the spirit, the ghost of Rebecca just coming at this woman. It is really, really great. I, I didn't, I, I thought I would enjoy it. I did not expect to be just as just sucked in as I was. It's interesting how many times in this episode of us, of you talking about these Hitchcock movies, we've referenced Orson Welles. Uh, it's not, yeah, it's not that surprising. Uh, the more I watch these and just, yeah. I, I, I kind of wonder if the two just started to impact each other. Um, along with any number of other, uh, filmmakers of the, of the time. Sure. Sure. But, um, okay. So you one more for you. Oh, you don't have anything. No, I'm done oh, okay. with movies. Last for me is, uh, so in my class, we, uh, did watch, a little clip from the movie seven, uh, as we were talking about notorious, because it was all about uh, placement of characters and not necessarily camera angle, but where people are in relation to each other within the frame. So we watched that clip from seven, which then made me want to watch seven again, which I did. So, and I haven't seen seven since, uh, since we were roomies. Okay. Uh, at Wayne Manor, um, which is what we called, uh, our place, uh, which we won't, explain yeah okay we won't explain why yeah i like that it's very large and very palatial and you know but that's not why we that's not that. <laughs> um so uh yeah i haven't seen it in a long time this is this is the third time i have seen it okay the first time was in theaters so if you're doing your math correctly i was 13 and one could say too young to <laughs> really understand i mean i still i still acknowledge that it was a good movie um but I don't think thematically I was ready to grapple with some of the stuff that this mm-hmm. movie is dealing with. And then when I saw it last time, uh, it depressed me so, so much because Jen and I were still dating and, uh, and that ending mm-hmm. r- it just really hit home for me this time. I'll say this. I'm, I'm older and, 
I'm kind of in the, I'm sort of in the Brad Pitt position. I am now married. Um, but I'm also kind of world weary. So there's a little bit of Morgan Freeman in me as well. And I'm able to look at all of this again. It's, it is very interesting how this is one of those films that because of a, a shift in, not a shift, but because of different points of view presented in the film, that depending on when you watch it in your life, you might have a different perspective on it. Um, it is oppressive. I mean, this movie, just the rain is constant. And we, we talked about the city. Yeah. Shot in Los Angeles. It's not meant to be Los Angeles. It's not meant to be anywhere. They never name the city. They yeah. refer- They will regularly say, it's like, I can't believe you came here. I can't believe you fought to come here. That's all they ever say. It's very clear they're going out of their way to not say what city it is, which means it's every city. And I yeah, know that you and I like that specific, like the specific specificity. But, but here's here's the difference because I know, yeah, I normally don't like when things don't say what city they take place in. Yeah, but I think you say it's every city, but it's also not any city. Like it's yes. it's a it's it's the idea of a city, but it's hell is yeah. what it is. And so to me, it it's okay to me that they're not saying what city it is yeah. because I don't think of seven as a movie that necessarily takes place in our world. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's hell or at least purgatory or something. Yeah, I definitely, because one thing that I, that I, the impression that I get is though it is constantly raining, I also feel like it's incredibly hot. Uh-huh. Uh, and just, and some of that has to do with, I think the, the, the color palette that Fincher works with, um, which is just a lot of, shit browns and stuff like that yeah and just rust color and uh but it's uh it is a very effective film i will repeat so i watched it with jen and she hasn't seen it for you know, forever um i will repeat a thing that i have said in the past which is brad pitt hasn't had had not at that point developed into the reliable actor that we know hmm. now you see a lot of young tendencies you see him uh making some you you see him making choices by which i mean you see him make these choices like he does this thing where he'll just like just kind of rub his head a little bit yeah and it just seems like a very like an actor trying to be marlon brando um and it's a bit off-putting at times um now it does i I like this movie more than you do and i used to hate it well and so okay it is a an argument could be made that the nature of his character is yeah. that he's trying to prove himself and that he's very self-conscious. I was about to make that point. So I'm glad you made it. Over. <laughs> and so, so maybe that's why I'll put it this way. Maybe that's why David Fincher allowed it. I don't think that's why Brad Pitt is doing it. Um, there's the same year. Cause that's the thing. There's the same year that he did, that he made, um, that he was in 12 monkeys, mm-hmm. which is a very self-conscious, a very, uh, uh, affected performance by its, by its very nature. And I find myself wondering if maybe there was some of that care, some of that residue in this character where things are just kind of big, but also he's acting alongside Morgan Freeman, who is just very comfortable on screen and is just himself and is just very in the moment. And so to see the two of them go back and forth, I think makes Brad Pitt stick out a little bit, but at the same time, his level of intensity does help the, the overall like, tonal tapestry of the film um, because he's a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. So I do. Th- so there is a lot in this movie that I love. 
Um, but one thing that Jen did point out is that sometimes the, the dialogue is a little bit clunky, um, and a little bit on the nose, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with it too, because, uh, I don't think of the movie as being real. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't have to approximate reality to me. And well, and also at the very least is it's very, you know, you have a couple different characters wearing fedoras. You've got a lot of shadow. You've got rain. I mean, it's not that it's trying to be a film noir, but it definitely is employing certain genre Mm -hmm. techniques. And the type of dialogue that you're hearing that is on the nose is no more on the nose than you would hear in, you know, Maltese Falcon or double indemnity or something like that. And so, uh, so that's so it's weird to be talking about these things that I don't like because there's so much that I do. It is structured so well, and just the way that that John Doe's, uh, you know, his little uh, opus here is unfolding. The way it unfolds is really really effective, and uh, and it is just it's. Like you could say, you could say hell, and I totally agree with you. It is that, and it's, and I, you could also just say it's an absolute nightmare. It's just a nightmare yeah. world. I feel like this world is maybe like three years away from Eraserhead. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know the uh, the cafe where Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow meet mm-hmm. is the same cafe where Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington meet at the beginning of. Training I do know Day, that. Yes, the Quality Cafe on Seventh, which has since closed. Oh, that's yeah. unfortunate. Uh, all right, so that's it for movies. Real quick, TV. I watched the show, you can hear me talk about it, and hey, watch this, called Barely Famous, which is apparently a couple of sisters who I guess are like socialites or whatever, the kind of people who have reality shows made about them, like the Kardashians, but decided they didn't want to do a reality show reality show, so they did, they're essentially doing a an imitation of Curb Your Enthusiasm, but it's about them making a reality show for VH1. So it's kind of... okay. It's Does a good it idea. Does it work? Scene to scene, it's pretty good. I think um, what they're forgetting to do is if you're going to make a f- fictionalized show, you kind of have to tell stories. And the, it's it feels like it's almost more a bunch of sketches around this oh, okay. idea. And neither of them is terribly unfunny, but neither of them is like a gifted enough comedian to really pull that off. So it seems like it's an it's It seems like a... Uh, a decent idea, but that's only half baked. Okay. So, um, and, uh, of course also, uh, uh, this week, Paul and I will be talking about the great British baking show, which sure. is back on PBS. I've heard people uh, like that show. It's so terrific because it's, it's managed to be everything that American reality competition shows aren't. Everyone's nice to each other all the time, and everyone just wants to do a good job and be the best at the thing that they can be. And there's also no cash prize or anything like that. At the end, you get like a trophy. That's it. That's what you win. It's it's. Uh, I, I you want get the title. Uh, what's that? You get the the title of champion. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I wish more reality shows were this pleasant. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, if you, uh, some people don't like watching people make food, but obviously enough people do that there are a bazillion shows about people making food. So that's a, a, a draw. Here's something I find fascinating about you. Uh, so y- you will, you'll see any kind of movie and you can like any kind of movie. 
Uh-huh. Um, as long as it's engaging, as long as it's good, you don't care if it is uh, a very violent film. You don't care if it's a very, one could say, ugly film or a very okay. unpleasant film like a Funny Games or something sure, like sure. that. Um, when it comes to your reality competition shows, though, you sound like, if you'll pardon me, my mom uh-huh. when she talks about movies, which is, why can't these people just be nice to each other? Like, that's a thing that she has said. And I know that... It's because they're real people. That's the, that's the difference between movies and reality TV is that I, I can't, when I see people being awful to one another, I can't help but think about them months later watching this as they, as it aired and either like not knowing someone was talking shit about their, uh, behind them, behind the, about them behind their back or seeing themselves do stuff that they were, either the situation like go to them into that they would maybe never do in their real life and feeling shamed for being uh, cutthroat and underhanded or whatever they're being, um, or just catty in a lot of ways. And I I can't separate that from the experience. And it's interesting. It's interesting because, to me, yes, they are real people, but they are in such a constructed environment. Um, the the re, the competition element can really make a person step outside of themselves a little bit in the moment and behave in a way that is either better than they are or worse than they are. And mm-hmm. I will say, have, having known somebody, a couple people that were on Survivor, mm-hmm. uh, where... Uh, people are some kind of encouraged to be ugly to one another. Um, the the attitude, once you're on there, you, you know that you're going to be edited and you're going to be edited in whatever way that, that's as true to you as the editors can make it knowing that they have a story to tell about the winner. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, and I so, don't think they're interested in being true to the, to the person. I, uh, it sounds like, based on the people that I've spoken to, the people that have been on, um, they said that by and large okay. on Survivor, you know, it's sometimes a personality, a person's personality is heightened or diminished a little bit, but the personality itself is, is but I, still what there. What I'm saying is there are, there are parts of the personalities that are either uh, more or less fabricated or excised because the producers and editors decide on sort of roles for each contestant and only show them. Like, I think, you know, I like the amazing race, but I always think of, uh, Luke of Margie and Luke, yeah, yeah. who is an openly gay man, yeah. but you would never know that from amazing race because they edited. It's like, no, he's the deaf guy because like basically it's the idea that they, they narrow each person or each, each team mm-hmm. down to, some defining trait and it's like well we have we have the gay guys you're the deaf guy yeah so any sort of reference to you being gay is not going to be on the show that's so interesting because i think it might be the situation with the luke guy um when i saw him it was i think his second or maybe even third Mm -hmm. appearance and by that time it would appear that they are because it's a, it's a thing that I definitely knew about him. Okay. Um, so maybe it's a thing they got more comfortable with, but at the same time, it's absolutely a show where it's like, okay, the, the rockers, the, uh, the, the gay farmers. And it's like, you could just say farmers. No, it's important. You know that they are gay farmers because you don't feel like you don't run across that very often. There was one, and this was probably before I think, you started watching the show, The Amazing Race. I like how Amazing Race isn't even in season. We're still managing to turn the end of the movie journal into The Amazing Race discussion. Uh, but there was a team who were 
dating. They might be engaged. I don't know. I think they were just dating. They weren't engaged, and they were both Christians who were saving themselves for marriage. Okay. So the Chiron, every time they were being interviewed, it said dating slash virgins. <laughs> yeah, that is. I think that is the problem. Uh, and and honestly, maybe that's that's not a thing that as i've watched a number of seasons of survivor i actually haven't found that to be the case is a reduction of somebody into this one thing uh you will actually see people change from one episode to another uh based on just are they hungrier or less hungry you know have they won a challenge or have they not like i feel like you get a much better sense of at least again it's you're never going to see 100 percent of what that person is but you at least get the, the idea of what a person is in that people change, you know, Mm. as I've said before uh, on this show and certainly on more than one lesson, I desperately love my wife. Um, I enjoy spending time with her and we have, we can be incredibly adorable together. Mm -hmm. However, if you catch us on a certain day, you might think, well, these people are either going to get divorced uh-huh. or murder each other. <laughs> uh, one th- that obviously these people should not be together. Oh, they've been married 11 years. They must, this, this must've been a hellish 11 years. That's if you catch us on a certain day, or if you look at us another day, it's these people have no problems at all. These people are completely in tune with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at the the whole of it, it's like, oh yeah, it's just two very flawed people who are trying to make something work and on sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And I feel one like one of them more flawed than others. Yeah. Right? You, you? The fuck are you saying? <laughs> anyway, um I never that's you know what? <laughs> I pull my fucking weight around here. All right. I don't know I'm I don't sure know, you do. I'm sure you I don't know if this broad's poisoning you against me <laughs> as she does. You know. Um, um that's one thing though that I enjoy I am becoming less and less enchanted with uh, Unreal um every week now. Uh, I have noticed a lot of people are that. Like just based on like the grades that the A V club has yeah. been giving, they seem to be getting lower. Yeah. But that is uh they do clearly the amazing race model and that fictional show and they 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 have like a you see it in, in the in the control room or whatever in, in some shots. They have a board with us like, here's the headshot of all the people and here's a word to describe what they are on this yeah. show. Um, that's an interesting insight. But uh, I wasn't going to talk about Unreal. I was going to talk about Adventure Time, which I've caught up on. After oh, that. okay. Uh, we haven't talked about it on the Movie Journal for a while. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. I love Adventure Time so much that I have... I've never watched Steven Universe okay i hear it's fantastic things about it but a part of me like has a grudge against steven universe because i feel like it's overtaken adventure time as like the cool cartoon network show to watch and it's like no i'm sure it's good but adventure time is in its seventh season and it's still a goddamn masterpiece and so few shows can do that uh david i've got not forget adventure time i have a story for you okay then we gotta wrap up i know when I was a kid, I would watch uh, Saturday morning cartoons, uh, a thing that I've been told is not really a thing anymore. Now there's just cartoons all the time. Right, but, I guess that's true. Uh, I'm sure there are still cartoons you can watch on Saturday morning. But anyway, but Saturday morning cartoons were like they would show once a week on Saturday morning. Yeah. And, you know, the, every network, every, every major network had their, their slate. And I remember that on Fox, once a year... 
they would do this thing where you the 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 kids the viewers would call in or whatever and they would talk they would say which one is their favorite uh-huh. and then they would then starting at 10 a.m going until noon or maybe it was 9 to 11 i don't recall but they would show like the top four with the number one being uh i think either the first or the last slot i don't remember and then just and I remember getting so cynical about it. I think I was nine or 10 at this point, getting so cynical about it because I realized very quickly that kids are stupid and whatever the new one is, is the one that's going to be number one. (laughs) It doesn't matter because it's just, I've gotten, you know, I'm going to cast Woody aside because I got Buzz Lightyear right here. (laughs) And, uh, and it's something that I noticed for, you know, they may, they might've done this more than once a year, actually. Um, you know, because when Batman the Animated Steer- Series started, oh, that's number one. No uh-huh. question about it. And uh, and I was fine with that. Oh, but here comes X-Men. And X-Men, now that's number one because it's the new one. And I was just like, hey, I got Batman, I got X-Men, everything. And here, here's the tick. Uh-huh. Things are working great. Well, well, hang on, who's this Power Rangers upstart? And I, and I thought it was the dumbest show. Yeah, and I, you and, and I, I are right on that cusp. Like people who are a year and a half to two years younger than we it are, is their thing. Remember Power Rangers yeah. very well. I have n- never watched an episode all the way through, and yeah. it was just because by the time it came out, it was already it was kid stuff. And I, yeah, and it I just have no connection to Power Rangers. It seems my younger so brothers hokey. though grew up with it. Yeah, and I feel like it's sort of like the same with Barney. I feel like we're a couple years away from yeah. Barney, but like no Sesame Barney Street, Reading Rainbow, sure. Mister Rogers, like that was us, but only a couple years later I, like we're a few different we're a few pop culture generations away from teletubbies like that's we weren't in danger of that but we're only a couple years away from barney i think that's probably true um, yeah. but yeah and so uh i got so i fe- i never called i never called to like vote yeah i just got so angry that it's entirely possible that no one called or that the com- that the network was just going to do what they were going to do anyway, and just air like yeah, obviously the most popular ones, the the newest one. Uh-huh. Um, it just I th- it might be when I first started. Uh, it might be when I first uh, mentally started getting uh, heading down the cri- the road of critic because I look at what the masses want and like these idiots have no idea. <laughs> it's just whatever's new in front of them. And it's like, yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't experienced this before. This is the best thing ever until the next one comes along. I got so mad. I was so angry. And so that's, uh, well, that's how you Power are with Rangers. What was that? It was Power Rangers. That's true. It might've been, you might've been less mad if it had been a better show. Again, oh, uh, never oh, seen an episode all the way through. Undoubtedly. Oh, and in retrospect, obviously Batman, the animated series is a much better show than X-Men. Um, Okay, I I have fond memories of both, but I yeah. haven't watched X Men in a long time. Um, here's a weird thing. I don't know why this is. Maybe just because when it when it aired and when it was, cause my brothers liked it, I have definitely seen more episodes of VR Troopers than of Power Rangers. Because I have memories of VR yeah. Troopers, even though that's also something that I was too old for. Yeah. But it must have just been on at the right time or my brothers watched it. I'm guessing it must've been something like that. There were, there were a lot of power Rangers was a definite phenomenon to the point that there were so many other, yeah. uh, so many ripoffs. Um, 
or quite possibly just they imported another show from uh, <laughs> Japan yeah. and uh, dubbed over that. But uh, yeah, I remember VR Troopers. I never watched it. And then there was one, the name of which I cannot recall, okay. that was like a parody, but still took it seriously. Ah, I don't remember that. It wasn't quite tick level parody, but if you actually look at, um, and listeners, maybe you can chime in, maybe you remember. It was structured, the, the, even the title was structured the same way as Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Um, so it was, it was multiple words, and it was, uh, and it was ridiculous, and it was meant to be ridiculous. Uh, boy, I wish I remember the name of it, but I cannot remember. Oh, that'll be something for the uh, comment section. Absolutely. <laughs> 